I'm Linus. Welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. How has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through history to find the answer, here on Kids Talk Church History. Christians are not different from other people when it comes to country, language, or customs. They don't live in separate cities and don't use a particular way of speaking. But it's while they follow the local customs in clothing, food, and the rest of ordinary life that they show us their wonderful and impressive way of life. A second century Christian wrote these words in a letter to someone named Diognetus, who was curious to know how Christians lived and what they believed. And this is what we're going to talk about today in this episode of Kids Talk Church History. My name is Lucy. I'm 16 and I live in San Diego, California. I am Trinity and I am 15 and live in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm Christian. I'm 13 and I also live in Charleston, South Carolina. And I'm Emma. I'm 15 and I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. Now, this letter to Diognetus gives us a good idea of how most early Christians lived. If you met them on the street, you probably wouldn't be able to tell that they were Christians because they didn't look any different than others. But, the author said, they were different in other ways. They lived in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They performed their duties as citizens of their countries, but they remembered they were first of all citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They loved even those who persecuted them. When people insulted them, they would answer with a blessing. That's a beautiful picture. We should all try to be more like them. I have read that they were also different in some of the symbols that they chose. For example, they avoided pictures of gods or idols and even pictures of swords or bows because they tried to live at peace with others. They liked images of doves, fish, anchors, and ships. Yeah, and I've also heard that the fish became a Christian symbol because the letters of the Greek word fish were also the initials of each word in the phrase Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. But that doesn't work in English, only in Greek. They also worshipped on Sundays, reading the Bible, praying, and taking the Lord's Supper. We know this from a letter by Justin, a Christian teacher from Samaria who died as a martyr in Rome. From this letter and another document called the Didache, it seemed that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper every Sunday. In our church, we do it twice a month. How about yours? We celebrate it every Sunday as well. So do we. In the first centuries after Christ, there were churches all around the Mediterranean and even in other places in Africa and Europe, as we've heard in a previous episode. So some cuss different there. For example, we know that some churches, especially in the East, celebrated Easter on the same day as the Passover and others chose a different date on a Sunday. We talked about this in our episode about Irenaeus, but I think the description in the letter to Diognetus still applied in most cases. Right. And actually, it may be easy for us to follow some of the customs of the early church or adopt some of their symbols, but loving our enemies and living in this world while we remember that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom still remains very difficult. Yes, that's so true. Also, some customs change with time. For example, many things changed after Constantine made Christianity a legal religion in 313. Well, there's so many more interesting things that we can learn about the early church, but for now, it's time to take a look at our mailbox, which is quite full today. Today, we have six questions. Um, We have two from two sisters, Michaela and Charlize in North Carolina. Michaela is eight and Charlize is 13. Michaela wants to know when the idea of praying to saints started and how many saints there are today. Charlize asked what Christians had to do in the early church before they could take the Lord's Supper. Was it enough to be baptized or were there other requirements? 
We also have a question from Lisa from Charleston, South Carolina. She asked, in what ways do you think the early church of the first and second century is like the church today? And finally, we received a lovely message from Robin who wrote, I like your podcast a lot. I'm interested in church history because my parents got into the theology of the Reformation and we became Presbyterians. I'm 12 and I have a question about a term used all the time on your podcast. What is a bishop and why were there bishops over whole cities and regions? Presbyterians don't have bishops that I know of in the historical sense. So what would a modern bishop be called in a Presbyterian form of church government? Thank you, Robin, for your kind words. And we had actually planned to talk about this today. We have the perfect expert to answer all of these questions, Dr. Stephen Presley, Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. But before we turn to him, let me remind you to send us your questions to this email address, questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org, for the opportunity to win a free copy of a book by Simonetta Carr. That's questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org. You can also find it on our website. And joining us today, our expert, Dr. Stephen Presley. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. So glad to be here and and have the opportunity to join you. Of course. Now, Dr. Presley, let's start with the letters from our mailbox. Um, How would you answer the question Michaela had? How did the idea of praying to saints start? It's a great question. And obviously, depending on what uh, Christian tradition or denomination you're part of, uh, you might answer this question a little bit differently. If we look historically, as with a lot of things, even some of the, the the points you mentioned earlier, doctrine develops over time. So early on, um, uh, those who had died in the faith, particularly the martyrs before the rise of Constantine in the fourth century, were held up and were were acknowledged as uh, as faithful to God even unto death. And after Constantine, when the church becomes a little more institutionalized, those who had died in the faith, those who had given their lives were often held up and revered in certain ways. So as the church grew, as the church expanded, there began practices where those uh, who were uh, who were trying to approach God would look to others who they felt were saintly or were holy and, and those sorts of things. Within, let's say, the Catholic tradition or the Orthodox tradition that took on a more formal uh, development of praying to those who may be closer or to God or more holy in a certain theological sense. But within the Protestant tradition, uh, especially after the Reformation, any sense of praying to the saints was uh, was something that the Protestant church distanced themselves from. In a sense, you know, myself, I'm a good Southern Baptist. I would acknowledge and look to those examples who have been, who have been holy uh, and respect them, but I wouldn't necessarily pray to them. And I would pray to the one uh, who is our mediator, that is Jesus Christ. Right. So uh, thank you for clarifying that. Uh, Do you think some people thought of the saints as they used to think of maybe their pagan gods before becoming Christian, like a saint for the harvest, a saint for sailors, a saint for travelers, etc.? Yes, there's definitely some of that. And that's one thing that the church has always been wrestling with. Wherever the church planted itself, I think you even you even mentioned this about going to Africa or other nations, the church is always struggling with the culture in which it finds itself. And so sometimes the church can take on features of that culture and use them for evangelism or apologetics, and sometimes those filter in and shape the way we conceive of doctrine. So there's always this tension. We feel it today in, in our world. I know 
you all feel it as you go to school, as you talk to friends, how much of the culture do we, do we allow uh, to use, uh, to draw on, to explain? Um, but yes, I think as the tradition developed, identifying saints with particular uh, particular movements, with particular developments was something that they may have borrowed at times. But again, you know, we we would acknowledge, as you mentioned Justin, you mentioned Irenaeus, you mentioned some of the great minds of the Christian tradition, we would benefit from them. And so we wouldn't want to, uh, to disparage them in a certain way and, uh, because of some of these traditions that have developed. And for uh, Michaela's second question, uh, how many saints are there today? I'm guessing by that she means how many people have been declared saints by the Roman Catholic Church? Do you know approximately how many there are? I don't know a number. um, And I think it's obviously because of the canonization process, it's always an expanding and developing um, thing. I don't know a specific number, but that's a good question. Mm. Okay. And I also know that uh, Lutherans and Anglicans have a list of saints, but uh, they don't pray to them, do they? No, they would not. Traditionally, your Protestant nominations, your Anglicans, your Lutherans, your Presbyterians, of course, all your free, what are called free church traditions, Baptists, non-denominational. The part of that reformation was to emphasize justification by faith. Christ is our mediator. And so again, we would respect, but not not pray to. Yes, very true. And then uh, Charlize's question, which was, uh, do you know what requirements the early church had for people who wanted to take the Lord's Supper? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, it's not all that different than uh, some of the conversations we have today. There, there are debates between what is called open communion or closed communion. Open communion are those people who have a view of the Lord's Supper that that tends to be more open <laughs> And, you know, allows a a variety of people within your tradition or within your denomination to come and join. Uh, And then there are those who have very strict views on communion. It's called closed communion. Either you must be baptized or you must be baptized in a specific denomination. You must have, you know, the whole whole set of qualifications. In in the early church, uh, especially if we look at before the rise of Constantine in the fourth century, it was actually a very long or what appears to be a long form of what we call catechesis or discipleship. There's one text um, that's traditionally attributed to Hippolytus uh, called On the Apostolic Tradition that says says catechesis before baptism was three years. Three years. I mean, that's a long time to be hanging out at church before you can take communion. But the church before Constantine was a persecuted minority, and they they were concerned. You know, they had a great concern about who who that who joined the church, and you could not take communion until you traditionally until you had been baptized and had joined the church. Uh, the church also had qualifications for uh, communion that involved being a member of good standing. So there were issues of morality, issues of, and, and again, it's not unlike today. You know, in pastors and churches struggle with um with those who fall away from the faith and whether or not they should they should come and take communion because communion symbolizes that family we are united together by taking this together we are a family so 
early on, there was it was actually a pretty high view of um, of communion and a pretty pretty stringent view leaning towards a more closed kind of view of communion than what you might find uh, today. Yeah, very interesting stuff, especially how it compares to um, how the church fences the table today. Yeah. And now uh, for Lisa's question, which was, uh, in what ways do you think the early church of the first and second century is similar to the church today? This is uh, this is a great question, and I think as the culture, particularly in the West, uh, changes, I think it's becoming evident that the situation the church is facing today is is very similar to the situation of the church in the first three centuries before the rise of Constantine. And and you mentioned Lucy, you mentioned Constantine, and it's pretty clear that after Constantine comes in the fourth century, it that develops what's an institutional church, a church where the culture is predominantly shaped by Christian morality, Christian virtue, Christian belief. You know, it takes a while, obviously, after Constantine, it takes a long time. But but in general, throughout the medieval period, even, even after the Reformation, we're still part of a culture that largely is shaped by Christian virtue, Christian morality, Christian doctrine, Christian theology, those kinds of things. Before Constantine, the first three centuries, the church lived in a world where that was not the case. They were not living in a world where Christianity was even largely known or largely influential. You know, and so in some ways, it kind of makes me hopeful. I mean, in a strange way, that the church has been in this situation before. And and as, as the scripture says, the gates of hell will not overcome the church. And the church has lived and thrived and survived, even when the culture surrounding it was, uh, uh, was pagan, in a very literal sense of the term, with pagans, temples on every corner and, and that kind of thing. And, and and the reality is, I think the church today can learn a lot from those, especially from you know the Acts of the Apostles, and then those first few centuries when the church was resilient, when the church was faithful, when the church was focused on discipleship, and and those kinds of things that stood the test of the culture around it. I'm curious what y'all think about that as you. Uh, you know, as you interact with your friends and um, anything online or social media or anything that you're dealing with, as you as you think about the church from what you read and what you know of, what are what are some of your thoughts about that? Well, I know for me personally, like Lucy was saying, the idea of the church being bigger than myself and even bigger than my individual con- congregation is very comforting and very empowering. Like it, it makes it a much easier thing like in the New Testament when it says to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, it makes it much easier to um, stand up for truth when, you know, you have a whole family going back 2000 years that's on your team. And that is a very, that's a very comforting and thrilling thought. Even that account, you talked about Justin Martyr, Lucy, and, and in his martyrdom accounts, it's kind of a, a famous account 
he he's questioned about his life and he and several of his his uh d- those who were with him his friends were all martyred and you know there's there's a, a roman a, a roman official that's questioning him and ultimately at the end of the day he says look i'm a christian you know and uh th- this is my identity this is who i am and he's ultimately um killed because of it but there yeah you look back at that resilience at that faith and you see it in the book of acts as well and that's that's it's fantastic yeah so comforting to uh, look back on and uh Finally, uh, we have uh, Robin's question, which was, what is a bishop and um, why were there bishops over entire cities and regions? Yeah, it's a good question. And and obviously the question uh, before the Reformation, and the question was coming from a, from a Presbyterian, w- one of the major issues faced in the 16th century was this question of ecclesiology, was the question of how do we order our churches and what is the role of the Bible in ordering our churches? So if you're Presbyterian, you have a a kind of an ordered structure that works with groups of people moving up, a Presbytery that works all the way down to uh, various levels. Uh, If you're in an Anglican tradition, obviously you have a bishop and you work your way down. Um, if you're in a free church, a Baptist, a non-nominational churches, these kind of function in a pastor model or sometimes an elder model, uh, depending on the, the nature of the church. Early on, what was happening in the church in the first few centuries, especially, let's say, let's say again, before the rise of Constantine, is a local uh, bishop would be appointed, either with uh, hands would be laid on this, uh, this particular uh, person. And that person would have a seat within a key center in the ancient world. So there is a Bishop of Rome, there's a Bishop of Alexandria, there's a Bishop of Jerusalem, Bishop of Antioch, eventually Bishop of Constantinople. Those were the intellectual and religious centers, and they would have key roles in selecting a clergy at the local level. So it, it would be a hierarchical structure that would move up. Uh, typically, your bishops would be uh, would be uh, essential to any kind of appointing uh, or any kind of general oversight at uh, a more local level. And some of this developed out of um, uh, the needs of the church, trying to bring a semblance of unity to the church. So early on, especially before. Uh, the rise of Constantine, there's no one single bishop that had universal authority overall. This is a key. Um, eventually, the Bishop of Rome in the West will will consolidate a little more power um, to become the Pope uh, and emphasize kind of the, the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome. Uh, but early on, there's bishops all over the Mediterranean world, and they're helping to appoint and select clergy that are functioning at all the various levels. There's not, I mean, we we are pretty organized today. In the early church, they're not as organized as we think about. Um, uh, the, the lines of structures and the lines of organization are not as clear as, as they are today, but that would be the role of a bishop. Uh, w- again, when you get to the Reformation, one of the issues with those denominations is how do we structure our church? And 
everyone's going back to the New Testament and going, what does the Bible teach about the structure of our church? And every denomination is coming up with a different ecclesiology, slightly variations of it. And that's how post-16th century, after the 16th century, that we have a variety of denominations. Really, what the one, one of the major things that divides us is how we order and structure our churches. Uh, Robin also had another uh, question related to that, which was, um, what would be the equivalent of a bishop in the Presbyterian form of church government? Now, I know you're a Baptist, so is there any kind of equivalent in your denomination? Uh, definitely not. Definitely not. If you're free church, let's say I'm Southern Baptist, we would hold to what's called the autonomy of the local church. So we would argue that every church is autonomous to itself and, and, and fundamentally reject any kind of larger oversight. We would place the authority of the, of the church within the congregation. And so the authority is in the congregation and the authority is in the local, at the local level. But a lot of denominations like Baptists will cooperate together as unified groups of churches for missions, for evangelism, and those kinds of things. Right. Uh, thank you for sharing that information. Uh, for the Presbyterian part, I have an answer right here from our director of communications. She said that the Book of Church Order of the PCA, which is Robin's denomination, actually says that a pastor can be called a bishop. It says, as he has the oversight of the flock of Christ, he is termed bishop or pastor. As it is his duty to be spiritually fruitful, dignified, and prudent, an example to the flock, and to govern well in the house and kingdom of Christ, he is termed presbyter or elder. As he expounds the word and by sound doctrine both exhorts and convinces the gainsayer, he is termed teacher. These titles do not indicate different grades of office, but all describe one and the same office. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church says something similar. In fact, they also add other definitions, watchman, ambassador, and also steward of the mysteries of God. So there's your answer, Robin. You can, in fact, call your pastor bishop. Not many people do, though. Yes, I am in the OPC or the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And now I really want to call my pastor steward of the mysteries of God because that's just <laughs> fabulous. And yeah. I'll be sure to check back and let you know what he says. But yes, Dr. Presley, I did have a question. So is it true that in the early church, when the Bible was read and explained, the preacher would sit and the congregation would stand? If so, do we know how long? these poor sermon listeners were standing up for? How long were the sermons? That's a great question. Um, we do know, like, for example, Augustine, Augustine sat and the congregation stood. Um, it's hard to get clarity on some of these things. On the length of the sermon, the first person that we have kind of a batch of their whole sermons is Origen. And even with his sermons, Origen of Alexandria is was in Alexandria, who was mid-third century. Uh, we have almost all of the sermons we have are of the Old Testament. We have a handful of his sermons on Luke. They're all pretty short, so it doesn't seem like they were standing for long. But there's questions about, uh, as in as in your, your service, there are typically three readings, an Old Testament reading, an epistle reading, and a gospel reading. And in each of those cases... Uh, there are debates about whether there was one homily at the end or three short homilies after each reading. There are debates about which was kind of developing. Uh, some you define of, or, homily real fast? A homily is just a short exhortation okay. over a biblical text. Yeah. Awesome. 
So with Origins, his sermons, his homilies on Luke, for example, are pretty short. And it there's some that think that was the only homily he gave, and there's some that think he was actually giving very three short sermons after each reading, just kind of three exhortations. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So they didn't have printing presses and Bibles weren't everywhere. And like you said, we have very little of um, sermons from that time period, but who had the Bibles and how did you get them? And could a non-Christian or a pagan get a Bible or did you have to belong to the church? Well, this is a good question. Um, a couple, a couple key things that are developing historically the second century, the church is transitioning from the scroll to the codex. The codex is like a book binding. So we know very early in this, and, and Christians are actually at the forefront of some of these transitions. So we know Christians are compiling texts together in a codex very, very early. Almost all the manuscripts we have in the early church are codices, are actually, so they're bound together. Um, there are debates about how, about those codices. Early on, the church is gathering together texts, church libraries. If you look at the book of Colossians, what does he say at the end? Make a copy of this and send it over to Laodicea. Have them make a copy of their letter and send it to, send it to you. And so this kind of copying and distributing, the book of Revelation, for example, was a circular letter. That was happening all the time to where one of the, one, one office that, that developed was the reader. We have lots of discussions about readers in the early church. Obviously, the uh, uh, the literacy rate was somewhere between five to twenty percent. There's all kinds of debates about this, and part of the debate is what actually constitutes liturgy. Some of you have younger brothers and sisters who can kind of read. And then, so what, what does literacy mean? And there's, so there's lots of debates about that, but clearly not much more than 20% or so could read. So you had to have someone who could show up at church on Sunday and could read. And the reading, um, there are debates about how long it took. It was obviously three readings developed by the third century. But you mentioned Justin in Justin's letter. He says that they, he was, he was apparently in Rome in a house church above the baths, as he reports, he read the Old Testament. They read the writings of the apostles, quote, as long as time permitted. Thank you again, Dr. Presley, for all your answers. But before you go, I want to ask you two questions we ask all of our guests. First, how do you become interested in church history? And second, what suggestions do you have for kids who want to learn more? This, uh, again, a great question. I, um, something like what, what Emma said a second ago that, uh, you know, in some ways I, gr I grew up and, and I heard some of these peoples, these names, I, everyone saw heard Luther and Calvin and, you know, Charles Spurgeon. And I'd hear these names growing up, but I didn't, I didn't really study them. Not like you. I mean, you, you all are, are way ahead of where I was, uh, you know, when, when I was, was growing up in the faith and it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't really till I got to seminary and I took a, my first course on church history and I just began reading the church fathers. Now I ended up studying the early church. Maybe it's because that's just where I stopped. <laughs> I started at the beginning and, 
and kind of got so excited about it. Um, and, you know, I, I think, again, kind of what, what Emma said, I read people that lived so long ago and I thought, I have so much in common with these people. There's a lot of strange things. They, they say some weird things sometimes, but, but sometimes they say things that are so beautiful. And I just think, gosh, here are people of faith, people with convictions, people who believe in Christian, believe Christianity is true. And I share so much with them and they encourage me in my faith. They encourage me in what I confess about God and about morality and about ethics and all those things. And so it was really just out of a love and in a, in a kindred spirit with, uh, with those who have, who have lived. And I got interested in it. I ended up studying it, focusing on it and, and um, uh, see history and, and the study of history as a, is a beautiful thing that I that I love. And then the other one, what what would I encourage you? I I think I mean for me, the, just getting into the primary sources, reading the works of great thinkers in history themselves. C.S. Lewis has an introduction to Athanasius's On the Incarnation. Athanasius was a church father in Alexandria in the fourth century. And he wrote a book called On the Incarnation. And C.S. Lewis has the introduction to that that he wrote in the mid-20th century. And his advice was simple, read old books. And in that, in that advice, he said, the primary sources are always better than the secondary sources. And so, I mean, the first step is to just pick out some of those most famous thinkers the Augustans, the Irenaeuses, the Justins, the even that Epistle of Diognetus is just lovely, just a lovely little letter. Other than that, I know there's biographies is always the way to go. So there's lots of great biographies out there. I'm sure y'all have recommended. So that that those are the two things I would say uh, and where I would begin. All right. Well, Dr. Presley, we are all so thankful that uh, you decided to come spend this time with us to share your knowledge. But uh, now it's time to say goodbye. Once again, uh, for our listeners, make sure you visit our website, kidstalkchurchhistory.org. That's where you'll find all of our podcasts, special offers, news, and more. And if you subscribe to our email newsletter, you will have a chance to win a copy of Simonetta Carr's new book, Church History. And don't forget to tell all your friends and family where they can find us. And in partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and on behalf of my co-hosts, Trinity, Emma, and Christian, my name is Lucy. Thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History.